If you have a Bible, please open it to Matthew chapter 11. We will in just one moment be reading in verse 20 through the end of the chapter. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, uh, you can find a copy of it in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And Matthew 11 and the passage that we will be reading from, you can find on page 766. Human beings tend to be natural classifier of things. We want to know what belongs where and what is like something else. We just tend to do things like this. It's almost innate in us. W.C. Fields once said there are two kinds of people in this world, those who divide the world up into two kinds of people and those who don't, but almost everyone's in that former category. We always put people in certain categories, and frankly, one of the categories that we put people into is a good category and a bad category. We talk about bad people. We know of bad people who do evil and wicked things, and we know good people who do excellent and approving things. Admittedly, we would recognize that it's something of a spectrum, but nevertheless, we have these sort of categories for people. And the last 100 years has provided for us wonderful depictions of each We have in the past century the model of evil itself in Hitler, although Stalin and a whole generation of Japanese generals would call into question his command of that particular post. But no one quite compares the Fuhrer of evil himself. He is the epitome of what we think of when we think of an evil person. Yet even while he was systematically trying to take over peaceful countries in Europe and he was detaining and mass-murdering Jews and while he was putting into practice the evil idea of eugenics. His actions led to some of the most beautiful stories of bravery and courage and good that we have. Stories like Anne Frank and Corey Ten Boom and countless others who risked their lives to help people during that time. Alongside of evil, there is always good. Likewise, even as this past week we remembered the anniversary of 9-11, we, we remember the horrific acts of cowardice, of killing of innocent people that that those planes provided for us and at the same time allowed for people to show, again, bravery and courage, laying their lives on the line for people that they did not know and they would never, ever be able to be thanked by as they gave their lives and things like that. We see good people. We see bad people. We understand it. We recognize it. But while we recognize it, we oftentimes misunderstand how God thinks of these things. We are told otherwise in the gospel. We believe otherwise as a gospel-believing church. And yet we tend, nevertheless, to calculate things differently than God does. We see good people. We see people who are filled with bravery and courage, with morals sort of pointed in the right direction. Often further on the scale of the spectrum of good than we are ourselves. And we think many of them will be destined for the kingdom of God. And at the same time, we see people who cheat and steal and lie, who mess with the lives of others only to gain for themselves. We think that those are people who are frankly just not cut out for the kingdom of God. It is easy to think this way because it's honestly hard to move from what our theology says to the practice of how we think about people. And today, as we come back to the word of God, as Jesus is continuing to talk here at the end of Matthew chapter 11, he reminds us of how upside down our thinking and our practices when it comes to these things. It is not the good. It is not the great. It is not those who are go-getters who are primed and ready for salvation. 
It is the good pleasure of God to hand salvation to those who are the most unlikely recipients of it, that he might receive glory for being the God of salvation, that he might show off just how incredibly gracious he is. Let us read the words of our Lord from Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. There our Lord Jesus Christ says this, or Matthew, excuse me, writes this. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of our God, and may he bless this reading of his word. As we come to this passage, the first thing I would put before you is salvation is not for the good, but for those who repent. It is not for those who are necessarily good in our eyes, not for those who are necessarily the better of us, but for those who repent. Jesus has just left off talking about this generation at the end of chapter 11, verse 18 and 19. He, he talked about how this generation could never be satiated. There's nothing that, that he or John could bring to them that, that they would have, have seen as good enough for them. Now he makes this sort of a more particular problem with the cities and the area that he is in. He points his finger first at Chorazin and Bethsaida and then at Capernaum. We don't know much about the spiritual state of any of these cities. We don't know anything much more than their relative geographic location, which is all around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has been doing most of his miracles here, as, as Matthew says. This is where most of his miracles had been done. We know this. Going back to Matthew 8 and 9, this is exactly where these miracles have been done, where he has been doing them. He's even given the Sermon on the Mount likely in this exact same area. And that's caused a great following of people. He seems to be surrounded by them wherever he goes. Even when Matthew is not telling us that there's a crowd there, I think the implication is that he is always here surrounded by people. People are excited about his ministry. They're excited about his teaching. They're excited about the things that they see him do. They, they have wonder on the tips of their tongue and praise for God on their lips because of the work that Jesus is doing. He is well-received. This area has been shockingly free, although not completely free, but 
fairly free of controversy for Jesus. And yet here we get these sort of unexpected woes. When you hear woes, you should not think that these are condemnations. We shouldn't hear them that way. The woes here and the much more infamous ones that are coming in chapter 23 are, are almost counterparts to the Beatitudes of chapter 5. The Beatitudes and those blessings are not God saying that he is holy for the people who are like that, but it's sort of saying that those people are in a favorable spot. You're in a good place. So it's not that everyone who is, in Luke's terminology, poor, or Matthew's terminology, poor in spirit, will indeed inherit the kingdom of God. But those who are poor in spirit have a good opportunity. They are in a favorable spot because they are, they are closer to Jesus. They're listening better to him. They understand his words clearer. They are less attached to the stuff of the world that easily sort of chokes out faith. They're in a favorable spot and therefore a place of joy and blessing. And here those of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum are in the opposite place. They're not in a good place, but they're in a dangerous place. Why? We don't know much of their spiritual state, but we know some things. They are Jewish, almost overwhelmingly Jewish. There would have been some Gentiles in the area, but overwhelmingly Jewish. Probably more loose in the law than their Jerusalem counterparts, because in Jerusalem is where the Pharisees kind of held most of their sway. Up in Galilee, they would have been a little bit looser with their adherence to the law, but nevertheless, they still believed in God. They still practiced and followed the Torah to the best of their ability, and certainly they were waiting for the Messiah. You can compare that to Tyre and Sidon, which is exactly what Jesus does. And when compared to Tyre and Sidon, there really is no comparison. Tyre and Sidon are Gentile cities, mostly people who, if they know anything about this Israelite God, have long since rejected him as some sort of weird, nationalized God who doesn't reign over all of the world, but, but is simply the one particular God that they happen to worship, and they don't think much of him. They are, in the words of Paul in Ephesians 2, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Those people are hopeless. Those people are Gentile. Those people are outside the covenant. Meanwhile, the people of Capernaum, the people of Bethsaida, the people of Chorazin, Jewish primarily inside the covenant. And Jesus looks at them and says, yet all the same, if I had done my works entire and Sidon, they would have repented. They are closer to the kingdom of God than you. It would be better for you to be in one of those cities because the judgment that is coming upon you is much stronger. Even if you think that you're within the covenant, even if you think that you're close to God, the judgment will be worse because you refuse to repent. They would have heard my words. They would have seen my actions. They would have said, this means that we have lived our lives wrong all this time. And they would have repented. But you didn't do this. You thought that this was just God being kind to you. You thought that this was a sign of God's affirmation of you. And you found no reason to repent. Friends, God God does not want your supposed goodness You might pay your taxes, you might spay and neuter your pets, and you might even drink out of, you know, those vegetable straws or whatever they are that aren't made out of actual plastic. Good for you. You probably just stop using ice, and then you can just drink your drink like a regular human being, but that's a sermon topic for a different day. 
But God doesn't need you to be better than other people. God doesn't, God doesn't need for you to display your goodness. What he wants is your repentance. He wants the acknowledgement of weakness and frailty and understanding of your own sin and your failures and your desire for mercy. There, are, there is no storehouse of mercy for people who do not desire mercy. There is no mercy for people who do not come to God and ask for mercy. There is mercy only for those who know they need mercy, who approach God in repentance. The people in Tyre and Sidon, Jesus says, would have understood that. Even as the Jewish people of Bethsaida and Chorazin don't seem to. In Capernaum, he says, will you be lifted up to heaven? Will you be exalted to heaven? Given how this is uttered, it, it might be a saying that was going around in Capernaum. They, they likely thought highly of themselves, especially given the excitement that would have been around Jesus and what was going on at this time. Jesus isn't doing his miracles in Rome. He's not doing it in Jerusalem. His main center of teaching, if he is the Messiah, is Capernaum. Do you want to get close to God? Do you want to see the kingdom of God? Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God. Where? In Capernaum. To be close to God, to be close to the kingdom, you come to Capernaum. They're going to be lifted up to heaven, but clearly not in Jesus' eyes. Here he uses, I think, a prophecy from Isaiah, which is about Babylon of all places. I think you can clearly appropriate it for Satan. It comes from Isaiah 14. And Isaiah says this, talking to Babylon, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Jesus looks at these people and he says, your pride will get you nothing. My presence with you means nothing because Jesus doesn't just come as he has just got done telling us in, in mercy alone, but he has come to bring a sword. He comes both with judgment and with mercy. To show this, he uses the most powerful comparison that he probably could muster. He calls forth Sodom, perhaps the most infamous city in all of history, filled with violence and perversion and godlessness. And yet in all of this, he says, it would be better to be somebody who knew what it was like to live in Sodom than it is to live here. Now, almost regardless of what you make of Sodom and what you make of Capernaum, there should be no doubt that Capernaum is filled with better people. It is filled with people who are more moral, who are more righteous, who seem like they're buttoned down and, and put together, who, who try their best to follow the Torah, who try their best to do what they need to do. And Jesus says, I'll have absolutely none of it. The point isn't about being better. The point is about repentance. And when Jesus is standing in front of you, there is a need for repentance. To truly see Jesus is is a little bit like looking out of your window when twilight comes. When you can still see the outside, but now the light inside is getting brighter and you see something of your own reflection there. Because when you look at Jesus and you see 
his greatness and his goodness and his divinity. It also says something about you. And in the end, the only real action that you can have for that is repentance. The very nature of Jesus' holiness and his majesty and his kindness and his goodness and his purity ought to be a reflection upon us that we are definitely not those things. And it calls for us to repent before him. A scholar I read noted that Matthew and Jesus do not excoriate these people for their unbelief. It's not because they didn't think highly of Jesus. It's not because they didn't say nice things about Jesus. It's not because they didn't seek out Jesus in faith to heal them. It's because they did not repent. For those who indeed see Jesus so clearly, who have the promises laid out for us, who, who even here, although they have received such great revelation, we stand on the far side of greater revelation of the final and finished work of Jesus Christ. How much more condemning is our work when we see the true purity and goodness and love that Jesus Christ has and we do not repent before him? Seeing Jesus and his works calls for our repentance. Salvation, friends, is not for those who are good. It is for those who repent. Secondly, salvation is not for the great, but for those to whom it is revealed but for those to whom it is revealed. Jesus' statements here about Capernaum and Sodom and Tyre and Sidon compared to Bethsaida and Chorazin, it kind of leads to some questions. How could Jesus possibly have known those things? He doesn't just know what people were like in the past, but he seems to know what they would have done had he been there and done miracles. And, and the problem that we come to is, is, is such a statement just rhetorical? That is, it doesn't, it doesn't actually need to be factual, right? He's just trying to make a point. The problem is that if it's not factual, the rhetoric undercuts itself. He can't just be using it as, as rhetoric because the, the rhetoric, the point that he's trying to make is that that is indeed factual. It's true. Jesus, as God incarnate, knows all that has happened in the past. But beyond that, amazingly, he knows even the possible paths that history could have taken but didn't take. He looks at these cities and he says, if I had chosen to show up in Sodom and do my works there, fire and brimstone would not have needed to come. If I, instead of going to you, had shown up in Tyre and Sidon and done work there, even today, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And we might, we might be able to look at Sodom and say, well, I can understand maybe because of time and chronology or whatever, it seems weird to say that Jesus should go back in time. We don't even know what that would look like, but Tyre and Sidon are right there. Like, it, it's miles to the coast, but Jesus has traveled further than that before. If Jesus is true, if Jesus, what Jesus is saying is right and true, why not go to Tyre and Sidon and do works? Why not do the very thing that he has said would happen? Jesus' answer is presented to us at once, very straightforwardly, very easily, and yet is at the same time an incredibly difficult answer. He says very clearly, didn't do these things because God reveals these things to whomever he wants to reveal them to. 
He says, yes, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. God reveals these things to whom he wants to reveal them to. And it's not the wise and the understanding. It's not those who we think are probably best suited for it. Not those who know how to read and search the scriptures. Not those who are best at interpreting and understanding it. Not those who can detect and understand and decipher all the things in the world. Not philosophers who use reason and apply it in complex thinking and to complex questions. Not those who are smart and noble. Rather, to children. And not just to children, to little children, incredibly young children, almost infants is what this means. Those who are not distinguished, those who are not accomplished, but those who are rather overlooked and undervalued. Those who have no power of their own to find out these things. Jesus says, God has hidden it from those who we most expect, and he has revealed it to those who we least appreciate. Why does God do this? Apparently, it is his good pleasure. I cannot, for the life of me, understand why verse 26 is translated the way that it is in the ESV. The NIV is much better. Yes, Father, this is what you were pleased to do. There's a footnote in my version of Scripture of the ESV. I'm I'm guessing there is in yours as well. It is not about God's gracious will. When we say will here, it makes it sound like God just is choosing. But it's not just God choosing to do so. What Jesus is highlighting is God's joy and happiness in doing what he does. It is his pleasure to do this. God is pleased to hand salvation not to those who we expect to get it, but to those to whom he wants to give it. Jesus goes on to say something that seems somewhat out of place. In verse 27, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things. Not some things, but all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And it is meant to be quite emphatic. God the Father has always perfectly, eternally, necessarily communicated all things to the Son. The divine essence, all the power, the rights and privileges of being divine, he has communicated those to the Son. The Son and the Father are indeed one. And notice the similarities here that echo that. Jesus begins this by saying, I thank you. This word of thanking is a word of joy and happiness. He is is happy that the Father acts this way. He is joyful in this. The exact same thing that, by the way, is reciprocated there in verse 26 where he says, it pleased the Father. The Son is happy because the Father is happy, and the Father is happy just as the Son is happy. But not only that, he says, the Father reveals them to who he wants to. You have hidden them from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. And then later on he says, no one knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him to. As the Father reveals, so the Son reveals. They do all things together. They are one. You can almost see in these short little verses here the words of Jesus that John seems to extrapolate into chapters and chapters in his gospel. In John 5.19, John might summarize this this way. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The point is this. God, in his great grace and wisdom and by the pleasure of his will, has chosen to reveal himself only to those whom he deems as small and insignificant. 
not to those who are wise and understanding, so that he and he alone might receive glory and honor and praise for the work that he has done. For if it was by our own understanding, you could easily come to Scripture and you could hear the words of the gospel. You could read Christian history, whatever it is that has led you to this place, and you could say, well, my wisdom has led me here. My wisdom has saved me. My understanding has allowed me to see the reasonableness of Christ. I I have appreciated and understood what he has done because I can comprehend it. I deciphered, I reasoned, I considered, I approved. You did nothing. Nothing. Do you believe in the Lord? Do you Do you trust the truth of Scripture? Do you know how to handle it and to use it well? Praise God, for it is not by your might or your wisdom or your understanding that you have any of that. You act at times in our pride, you, me, all people, act in our pride as though we have accomplished something when God has simply given it to us. We have accomplished nothing. If you understand these things, it is because God has given it to you should humble us. God's glory is seen in this. He has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens those whom he hardens, but it is his choice. And both Jesus and the Father are far, far from being either worried or ashamed about this. Some people hear these things as a source of consternation, or it's confusing, or it's problematic. God, however, treats all of this with pleasure as though it were extraordinarily good news. And we should as well. Left to our own devices, we would never be smart enough, clever enough, wise enough, powerful enough to be able to do the things we need to come to salvation. Our sin has left us blind and deaf and wrecked and ruined. But God is gracious in giving us salvation. Which brings us back to the top of this particular segment of Scripture, back to verse 25. And he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. What are these things? I think these things are the things that lead to repentance. A knowledge and appreciation and a conviction of sin. A desire to be rid of it, to find forgiveness. These are the things that God reveals. God shows you how frail and faulty and sinful you are. He shows you the error of your ways. He shows you the corruptness of your own heart. He cuts you that he might heal you. He brings you low in your sin that he might raise you up again. And in this, God is incredibly good. He is incredibly good. God reveals these things to you to show you how little you can do so that he might receive glory when he does it all for you. That is good, good news. For many, though, this just leads to more questions. If this is true, why call people to repentance? Why evangelize? Why why preach the gospel? Why listen to the gospel? Why seek out holiness? If this is all just a work of God, why do this? There are clear answers to that. Is that if I use a can opener and my wife walks into the kitchen and she says, huh, thanks, who opened this can that I was going to use? I don't say, well, the can opener did it. I say, I did it. Even when my kids did it, I say, I did it. 
Just because the Spirit might use us, it might use the reading of God's Word, it might use the evangelism of His people, doesn't mean that the Spirit isn't the one doing it. But more importantly, in the exact same breath, where Jesus is declaring that it is all because of the will of God. He reveals the Father. The Father reveals these things to people. It is all the work of God. He is, in the same breath, he turns around and he says, come to me. Which brings us to our third point. Salvation is not for go-getters, but for those who seek rest. For those who seek rest. All who come to Jesus seeking rest, who seek the burden of their repentance to be taken off of them, will find in him a faithful surgeon who is willing to remove that burden from them and to give them rest. We, we can look around from a human perspective and we, we would easily say that we don't know who God is drawing to himself and if he does, why, why would we worry about anything? If we can't make people come, then why worry about doing it? But Jesus is either not as theological as you are, or better yet, he's probably just a better theologian than you are. All who come are drawn, and all who are drawn will come. And so he says, come to me. He will not cast out any who come to him. So come to him. Those who seek rest are those who labor and are heavy laden. Not just those who seek healing, but those who feel the real and true weight of their sin. Who have come before them with an issue of repentance most, most fully. They, they feel the weight of their own grief and, and trouble and penalty weighing down upon them. And Jesus begs of them, come to me. Notice, it is Jesus calling them. It's their burden. He, he doesn't take it away from people reluctantly. You don't come to Jesus and Jesus says, oh, okay, well, I guess because you asked politely this time, I'll help. Jesus is the one calling. He's saying, come to me and I will remove it. And he's talking about how, how thankful he is that the Father does this. And how it is the Father's pleasure to have this happen. It is the joy of Jesus Christ to save sinners. He will replace it with his own yoke. But he says that this yoke is easy and light. And here I understand why the ESV went with the word easy. The problem is that this word easy almost never actually means easy. It kind of messes with the metaphor to change it. So again, we can understand why, given the metaphor, they use easy. But the word is everywhere else translated with one of two English words, good or kind. He says, my yoke is good for you. We can look at repentance and we can believe that repentance is an incredibly difficult thing. And it is. Repentance is incredibly traumatic and difficult. There are plenty of people in this world who, if they are going to repent, are going to, they're going to lose a lot. They're going to have hardened relationships. They're going to lose respect of coworkers and other friends. They might have their entire lives turned upside down. They might have all of these difficult things happen to them, and I guarantee you, that the world and Satan 
will always be there whispering in your ear all of the bad and difficult things that are going to happen. All of the wretchedness that could occur if you admit this. All the things that could come down. All of the the horrible events that will certainly unfold if you open up your mouth and you repent. God will reject you, he'll say. Your friends will reject you. There's nothing good that can come of it. But God says, no, my, my yoke is good. It's good. The best, very visual, difficult metaphors for repentance is that of throwing up. You just never beforehand seems like a good idea, frankly. Like it, it, you feel horrible. You got that pain nodding up your stomach. You don't want to do it. But the minute it's over, you feel a tremendous relief. That's repentance. And what Jesus is saying is, no matter how many difficult things might come, you need to understand that my yoke is good. Right? You might have in your mind all the problems that are going to, to pile up after you repent, but he's saying, my yoke is good. I'm not just merciful to forgive your sins, but to leave you in your trouble. I am good to give you good in return. But it is not just good. It is easy and light. It is an insignificant burden. Too small, maybe, to even notice. When you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, there is a tremendous amount of difficulty we consider what Jesus is actually requiring out of us there to forgive enemies, to forgive people who are unlovable, to continually be killing our sin, to be getting rid of our sin in any way we possibly can. We are told that we have to avoid anxiety and fear. All of these things can look almost insurmountable to anyone who's ever tried to do them before. They look difficult. And it's not just our appreciation of these things that make them difficult. Jesus looks at us and he says, yeah, it's difficult. If you're traveling down an easy road, friends, you're on the wrong road. The one that leads to life, he says, has got a narrow gate and it's a difficult path. Jesus himself says that it, it's difficult. But here he says it is an insignificant difficulty. Sometimes my toddlers will go up to like a basket of books and they'll try and move it. And they'll make that normal human noise that signifies to everyone else that they're putting a lot of effort into it. I don't know why. It's like people just know that this is the sound that you need to make to to show everybody that you're working really hard at something. And this is probably a surprise to all of you, but I'm stronger than them at least a little bit. And it doesn't take me any effort at all to move that. And there are people who are certainly much stronger than me. And things that I would have to grunt to move, they can just come along and move with ease. What I find incredibly difficult, because other people have worked and struggled in other ways than I have to build up their muscles and to become stronger, is insignificant to them. What Jesus is saying is that that difficulty is made insignificant by his own joy. He is giving you his burden. He will indeed take up that difficulty for you. He will help you and aid you with it. He, in his joy, 
makes us strong so that the weight isn't weighty anymore, but it's, it's insignificant. Jesus calls for you to lay down the burden of repentance on him, to cast not only your faith, not only your trust upon him, but all of your sinful deeds upon him. Let him bear the brunt of sorrow and grief and penalty and instead take up his yoke. The go-getters of this world are people who think that they can handle it all on their own. Filled with pride, they're the ones who say, well, if it's mine, then I'll deal with the, the, the end result of what's going to happen. I'll deal with the consequences myself. I got myself into this mess. I'll get myself out of it. I don't need any help. Christianity is just a crutch for people. Hey, amen. It is an absolute crutch. And you want to face the weight of God on your own? You go ahead and do that. We'll see how you fare. Go-getters handle problems themselves and the weight of their sin will one day crush them. But those who seek rest from Jesus lay down their sins at his feet, indeed, even at his command. Friends, trust that Jesus is all that he claims to be. He is a God who gives this indescribable gift of salvation to you by his own good pleasure. He is a joyful Savior who has come to save sinners, a friend who carries your burdens for you. Come to him, all who labor and are heavy laden. Find rest for your souls because he is indeed gentle and lowly. He cares for you. He loves you. He helps you. He will heal you. He will do good to you. And he doesn't resent you for any of it. Find rest for your souls. For his yoke is good, and his burden is insignificant. Let us pray. Father, give us this kind of trust in Jesus. Not to think that he is just wise and good, but allow us to trust in his goodness. Let us trust that he will never cast us out. Never reject one who comes with sincere repentance before him. Let us cast aside such sin, knowing the goodness of Jesus to replace that burden with a kindness and a joy. Let not our pride and hard hearts keep such burdens upon us. Give faith and mercy and repentance this morning. We ask these things for the glory of Jesus and for our good. Amen.